Okay, <clears throat> I think we can start. Hi, Hull. Um, welcome to today's event. Um, I am called Ponciano Bimani, and a visiting research fellow at the Firoz Lajit Institute for Africa here at LSE. And to, tonight, uh, webinar uh, is being co-organized with uh, Firoz, the uh, Center for, I mean, Institute for Africa, um, and is part of the LSE Middle East Center's um, studies series. Before we start, I would like to run us through the proceedings for the event. Um, our speaker will speak for 15 to 20 minutes. Um, that will leave uh, the rest of the time for Q&A with the audience. Um, if you'd like to ask questions, um, please type those in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. And please do familiarize yourself with, with that and not the, the chat box. We will then address the question to the speaker. Uh, please note that this event will be recorded and will also be live streamed on Facebook. And if, I just want to make sure that everyone can hear me, if anyone um, can confirm in the chat box, just to be sure. Um, so, um, so with that, for those of you who would like to tweet uh, the event, please uh, use the hashtag LSE Middle East. Um, I will just know that, I'm not sure if it's um, case sensitive, but I will post that also in the main chat. Um, so before I introduce our speaker, I would like to introduce um, Zainab Kaya to say a few words about uh, the book. Uh, while she joins us, I would like to say a few words of introduction uh, about Zainab Kaya, who is a visiting fellow at the LSE Middle East Center and co-audit editor of uh, IB, Terrorist uh, Bloom's Brickadis uh, Studies Series. Zainab is a lecturer in the international relations at the University of Sheffield. Our main research areas involve uh, borderland, territoriality, conflict, peace, politics, legitimacy, and gender in the Middle East. She has recently published a monograph entitled Mapping Kurdistan, Territory, Self-Determination, and Nationalism with uh, Cambridge uh, Press. Uh, Zainab, you're welcome. Thank you, Ponciano. Um, it's so nice to be here. Thank you for uh, for organizing this event, uh, Nadine. I mean, uh, with the uh, with the support of uh, Ponciano, so we are delighted to host um, Yaniv's book launch uh, at, at the center. So, Kurdish study series uh, was established a couple of years ago. Um, uh, my co convener Robert Law. And I thought, um, you know, there is um, 
there is a need for uh, you know bringing um, new work, new research, um, co co you know, conducted by um, young or more kind of established scholars uh, working on the Kurds. So what we want to do is to disseminate and, and discuss this new research on Kurdish politics and and Kurdish society, and perhaps provide a network for scholars and students. Um, you know, with shared interests on this topic. So it's great to have Yaniv uh, on, on, our, on our event series and to talk about his work. Yaniv is an old friend. We did our PhD together at the LSE um, and uh, not many people were working on the Kurdish politics during that time. So it was so, uh, it was, we had such great conversations and it was also refreshing for, um, uh, for both of us kind of because we were approaching the topic in, a, in different ways. So it was great. Um, so since then, uh, he has done some amazing things, as Ponsiona will tell you about. And this book is, is his final uh, output. I remember years ago when Yanni was planning this project and just before his first visit to South Sudan. Uh, and, you know, what a big project he was embarking on. Um, and it's so nice to see now this project has come to an end and, you know, see it published. Um, so, you know, I look forward to um, hearing from Yaniv about the book, but I just to say a couple of words on the book, what I, why I think it's such a valuable contribution um, is that it's looking at the Kurdish case and South Sudan case from an international political perspective, uh, which is, um, you know, a, a growing area of research in, in Kurdish studies, uh, but still quite small. So I think therefore it's, it's a brilliant contribution. and. The way um, he's exploring um, uh, the ways in which European colonialism have shaped these insurgents and the government strategies is, is such an interesting aspect to focus on, uh, rather than simply just focusing on the organizations themselves and the causes of conflict. Um, and um, so, um, and, and positioning this case, these two cases in a comparative way within the international context, I think provides some uh, really, uh, fascinating insights on the cases, but also in terms of, you know, what what what's the international context that how does it shape the these these events and these uh, these separatist conflicts? I'm especially excited about the comparative analysis dimension and the empirical richness that's embedded in the book, which I know it's it's quite extensive. Uh, so thank you, Yanni, for uh, accepting to talk at our event, and you know, and thank you, Ponziano, for collaborating with us. In organizing this and I look forward to the discussion. Uh, I'll stop there, I don't want to take more of, of the time. Um, thank you. Okay, uh, thank you Zinab. Um, just before I give the floor to, to our speaker, please allow me to introduce um, Yunef, um, who is a senior lecturer in the politics of the Middle East at the University of Kent. Prior to this, he was a Leveram Early Career Fellow at the School of Social and Political Science, the University of Edinburgh. Vola uh, received his PhD, as uh, Zineb already mentioned, uh, from LSE, where he taught courses in the International Relations and International History Department. In 2018, 2019, Zineb uh, was a conflict research fellow at the DFID funded conflict research program at LSE and the school and the social science research council. But I also researched broadly uh, concerns the 
the geopolitics of Middle East, uh, the foreign policies of Middle Eastern states, separatism slash um, liberation, uh, insurgencies and the role of ideas, ideology and practices in shaping international politics. He is the author of the Kurdishan Liberation Movement in Iraq and from insurgency to statehood published by Brutley. And of course, he is also the author of the, the book that we are launching today, which is Second Generation Liberation Wars, Rethinking uh, Colonialism in Iraq, Kurdistan, and Southern Sudan. Uh, please, let's welcome you know, our speaker. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, first of all, Zeynep and Ponciano for the introduction and for the kind words. Um, thank you so much to the Middle East, to the LSE Middle East Center for hosting me. I, I, as a PhD student, I spent a lot of time there. And um, I, 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 think, I think that the Middle East Center is becoming one of the most important centers for the study of the Middle East, um, not just in London, not, 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 not just in London, but globally. So I'm, I'm really delighted and grateful um, to be invited to, to launch my book and uh, of course to, to Nadine for organizing everything. Um, so yeah, um, my book, let me just, um, I want to share my, I prepared a very uh, brief presentation um, just because I find, um, uh, just because sometimes you know, uh, in, in online presentations, my, my pronunciation doesn't always go through very smoothly. So. Um, I'm going to use I'm going to use this uh, um, PowerPoint presentation along my uh, my 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 talk. Uh, so I'm going to try to stick. I'm going to try to do it as uh, I'm going to try to keep it short. Uh, stick to 15 20 minutes talk, um, and then and then hopefully we can have a Q and A session. Um, okay. So so my book. Um, what what is what is the book about? Um, in in a nutshell. The book explores the strategies of insurgency and counterinsurgency in post-colonial separatist war. And it does so through the cases of Iraq and Sudan and the liberation wars in Iraqi Kurdistan and Southern Sudan. And I'm using in the book Southern Sudan because in the period that I'm exploring, it was still part of this very large state that was Sudan uh, before it actually became the Republic of South Sudan in 2011. But the, the best way to start describing the book is perhaps to tell how I actually got to explore the subject. And um, my previous research was about de facto statehood, right, unrecognized statehood, and Iraqi Kurdistan as a de facto unrecognized state. And in this project, I was much more interested in the post-1991 period and, um, and the emergence of the Kurdistan regional government. But as part of this research, I, I felt that I needed to write at least a short background chapter on the history of the Kurdish liberation struggle uh, from its early days, right? It, wasn't, it was supposed to be just an intro into the main subject of analysis. But the more I read about this episode in Kurdish, in, in Iraqi Kurdish history, I, 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 I started, I became more and more intrigued by the events that took place. And I came to realize that there's a, a lot we can learn about international politics 
from this episode. So I started, uh, I started delving a bit more into the literature, just visited a few archives uh, for, for the sake of extending my knowledge. And um, it was one day when I was sitting at the um, Middle East uh, Documentation Unit at Durham University, a really good archive for Middle East studies. And I encountered the Kurdistan Democratic Party, you know, the, which was leading the um, Kurdish liberation struggle in the 1960s, 70s. I, I encountered one of the Arabic language organs, right, with the, the newsletter. And in this newsletter, there was a really uh, detailed, in-depth analysis of the Addis Ababa accords between the Sudanese government and the Southern Sudanese separatists. And um, it was done, this analysis, of course, was done from the perspective or from the uh, Kurdish prism, right? How this um, peace agreement affects the Kurdish struggle and what the Kurds can learn from this incident. And this was, this was a really, this was an eye-opening moment for me because it made me realize that um, the Kurds and the Southern Sudanese, right? They, they share the predicament, but also an identity, right? A perception of who they are in international politics and what they need to achieve. And it was quite, it was, it was a very important moment for me. I have to admit that at this time, I knew very little about Sudan and, and South Sudan or, or Southern Sudan. I knew a, a bit, but, but, but not enough. So I started reading more and more on that. And again, when I did it, I wasn't entirely sure what I was, uh, what I was expected to learn, what conclusions I can, I can actually reach. But in 2013, after I finished my, my, you know, my PhD project, I was, uh, I was really lucky, I was really fortunate to secure a three-year grant by the Liverpool Trust, which um, enabled me a three-year fellowship at the University of Edinburgh. And I could actually really go further into these, um, into these cases, right? comparing Southern Sudan and, and Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, and I, 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 again, with, with a certain sense of what I wanted to do, but not a clear goal in mind, I started doing archival research. And I spent quite some time in, um, in the case of Iraqi Kurdistan, my main source was the Iraqi Ba'ath uh, Ba'ath Party archives at the, uh, the Hoover Institution in Stanford. But in the case of South Sudan, it was, uh, I spent a lot of time, uh, it was, a, again, it was a great revelation for me. Um, I spent a lot of time at the uh, South Sudan National Archives in Juba. And it, it was quite an amazing experience because you know, South Sudan as a state faces a lot of challenges and, and uh, seeing how the, the archive was kept and run in spite of all of the difficulties was, was, was quite a powerful experience. And it was, it, it was, it's a very useful archive and I spent, quite some time in South Sudan exploring um, the, the history of the period. And um, I also spent some other time in uh, reading, going over other collections at Durham University, SOAS, Exeter. And also I really want to highlight another great source of information about South Sudan. For anyone interested in the subject, there is the Sudan Open Archives, which is run by the Rift Valley Institute. It's an amazing online source of thousands and thousands of documents on Sudanese history and politics. So I started delving into these collections and it was already at the beginning of this research project that I started realizing that my instinct was correct, right? What struck me mo the, the most about the Kurdish and Southern Sudanese movements in the 1950s, 60s, 70s was that both of them 
And, um, and they actually shared it with other cases, but I preferred to stick with these two cases. Most of them came to see themselves as subjected to colonialism. But they, they were subjected, they, they felt that they were subjected to classic colonialism, right? It wasn't neo-colonialism in any way. It was classic colonialism, but it was being practiced by the elites in the new states, right? By the uh, predominantly Arab elites in, in uh, Baghdad and Khartoum. And as such that the Kurdish and Southern Sudanese intellectuals and leaders, they actually came to depict themselves as anti-colonial liberation movements, fighting to decolonize their homeland, right? Their native lands from Arab, uh, Iraqi, Sudanese imperialism and, um, and, and, and uh, exploitation. So again, now it's important for me to stress that this wasn't simply a propaganda for international public opinion. When Kurdish or Southern Sudanese speakers and leaders were talking about colonialism and, de and, and decolonizing their lands, it was also very much present in their internal discourse, right? In the discourse within these communities. Now, what's more important is that this perception, this self-perception, as anti-colonial liberation movements did not remain confined just to discourse. In fact, the, the Southern Sudanese and Kurdish uh, liberation leaders and movements actually adopted the tactics and strategies and, and practices that the previous generation of anti-colonial movements used, had used against the European empires, right? Against European uh, uh, colonialists um, and, and especially um, guerrilla warfare and uh, the diplomacy of liberation, right? The, the, the Kurds and Southern Sudanese leaders adopted them and, and adjusted them to their cases. Now, um, to any, anyone who is familiar with international relations theory has probably encountered the, the term uh, role theory. Uh, now, um, I know that the, the, the audience is probably quite diverse, and I don't want to get too much into theory, so just to try and put it very shortly, role theory uh, is actually a theory, it's actually borrowed from uh, social psychology. And this theory suggests that actors in different social contexts often try to behave according to the roles that they believe they're expected to play, right, in order to achieve their goals. And yeah, international politics is also a social context. Actors interact with each other, they learn from each other, they adopt certain identities, and they try to learn how to behave, right? So, uh, for example, an actor that wishes to be seen as an empire will probably try to behave like an empire, as we've seen in, in the last uh, week or so. Um, the separatist movements in former colonies such as the Kurdish and Southern Sudanese movements, they wished to win their right to self-determination, right? Um, and they soon realized that in order to achieve this goal, they need what well, they needed to be seen and act like anti-colonial liberation movements fighting against colonialism, right? So it was, uh, so uh, they adopted this identity of anti-colonial movements fighting against colonialism and exploitation. And they realized that because the founders and the leaders of the Kurdish and Southern Sudanese liberation movements 
were constantly exposed to the first generation liberation struggle against European colonialism, right? Kurds, uh, Kurds and Southern Sudanese took part in their country's liberation struggles, right? They, they, um, they participated in the discussions. They even participated um, in, in uh, the protest against colonialism when necessary. Uh, they were close observers of this struggle. Um, and they also, they were also close observers of other struggles for, for liberation, right, from European colonialism. Uh, many Kurds and Southern Sudanese started attending universities, first in Europe, but then also in the Middle East and in Africa, right? And there they met liberation leaders from all over the world. Um, and they, they, they read or met in person with, with Nasser, right? With Egypt's Nasser, with, with Che Guevara, with Mao Zedong, with Julius Nyerere. And they, they learned from their experiences. They observed their cases and they embraced their identity, but also the practices that, um, of these movements and that, that, that these intellectuals preached for. So I started exploring that and delving more into that. But then my research took another turn because although my initial interest lied in the liberation movements themselves, I soon realized the obvious point that in fact, separatist wars have two sides. There are the insurgents, but there are also the counterinsurgents, right? There are the rebels, but there are also the governments who fight against the rebels. And it became clear to me that the Kurdish and the Southern Sudanese depiction of Iraqi and Sudanese elites as practicing colonialism in the you know, in their peripheries was actually not far-fetched. The Iraqi and Sudanese authorities actually did follow um, the, the same policies that the colonial authorities had used to suppress uprisings in their peripheries, right, in the colonies. Um, of course, they, they sent the armed forces to fight against the insurgents, but they also used the kind of violence that aims to tear apart societies, that aims to divide societies in a way that would prevent any resistance to central power. Um, they, they sent, um, you know, quote unquote, loyal settlers, and particularly Arab settlers, to the, uh, to the south in the case of Sudan, to the north in, in Kurdistan. They started to try and Arabize uh, the uh, Kurdish and Southern Sudanese societies. In, in the Sudanese case, they also tried to um, Islamize the Southern Sudanese society. Um, and they they try to revive um, they they try to revive tribal systems. You know the the so-called colonialist native administration. The idea of strengthening more conservative elements and use tribal structures uh, um, as, as forms of mediation again in order to try and divide the, the rebels. And they recruited militias from among the the Kurds and the Southern Sudanese mainly with the purpose of dividing society, these societies, mainly with the purpose of tearing them apart. Even when it came to discourse, the Iraqi and Sudanese elites resorted to the colonial discourse of the civilizing mission, right? So Islamizing or Arabizing these societies was depicted, was described as a way to advance the, the more backward elements of Iraqi and Sudanese society. So it was quite interesting. And the thing is, if we go back to the idea of role theory, you can say that it, it can be applied as well to the post-colonial elites because they too try to play a certain role, the role of the state, 
And the model of the state that was most familiar to them in the 1950s, 60s, was that of the colonial state, right? Um, many of these, um, 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 once these elites faced a challenge to the authority in the periphery, they immediately resorted to the only way that they knew and, uh, how to deal with such challenges, right? And that was the colonial methods of suppression. And again, it's not, it shouldn't come as a surprise if we take into account the fact that Iraqi and Sudanese um, elites, even uh, certainly in the 1950s, but also in the 1960s and even 1970s, they were products of the colonial system, right? They were trained uh, by, by colonial uh, military officers. They, uh, they worked for the colonial government sometimes and they were trained in colonial institutions. So they, um, and in the latter, the latter generations were trained by the same generation that was trained by the colonialists. So they were very much shaped by the colonial um, state making, by, by colonial governance. And this really, and, and this shaped their understanding of how you deal with dissent, which was something that colonial administrations often did. So if we look at these conflicts, right, if we look at these separatist wars in former colonies, you can't say that in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the post-colonial separatist wars actually reproduced the previous generation of anti-colonial wars, but now in the borders of the newly, of the newly formed post-colonial states. Uh, with, with some adjustments, of course, there were some changes, and I, I go into more detail on that in the book, but uh, there were, it, it was a reproduction of former anti-colonial wars. And, um, and this is why, this is why I choose to, I, I've chosen to describe these researchers or the subject of analysis as second generation liberation wars. Now I'm, I'm, I'm about to finish, but uh, before I do that, uh, I want to stress why this is actually important. And this argument that I make in the book is important because first of all, it contributes to the historiography of colonialism and decolonization, right? The tendency in the literature about colonialism and decolonization is to describe these as historical episodes confined in time and space. Um, but what I argue is that colonialism and decolonization are, don't, are not just historical episodes. They are actually sets of practices and role conceptions that could be, that were indeed taken and adopted by the successors of these institutions, right? By, by, so the, the, the anti-colonial movements um, ended up uh, embracing the role of the anti-colonial liberation movement, whereas, um, again, in, in, in not necessarily consciously, the post-colonial governments ended up adopting the role of the colonial state. Well, in fact, it was pretty much unconsciously. Um, but the book is not merely a history book. Because in fact, I'm not a historian as such, I'm, I'm more of an international relations uh, scholar. And, and again, um, and the importance is that the book, the book highlights the significance of practices and roles in international uh, politics. And um, it's actually, it, it becomes quite evident. Let, let, let me explain this point by moving to the last chapter of the book, um, because this chapter <clears throat> focuses on the transition 
in the liberation strategies of the Kurdish and, and Southern Sudanese movements. In, um, so in the early 1990s, the leaders of these movements began shifting right from the armed struggle to state building as a liberation strategy. And they began investing in building governance institutions, capacity and infrastructure. And these were of course very rudimentary ones, but still these became important for um, these movements, liberation struggles. And I argue that this had a lot to do with the fact that in the late 1980s and especially early 1990s, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia and the emergence of new states, the understanding of what liberation means, the understanding of what it means to be a liberation movement and what self-determination means started changing. Now, of course, there were also important historical opportunities. Uh, the Kurds were able to gain control over their territory because of the you know, fly zone um, after the, uh, the first Gulf War. The Southern Sudanese were able to drive out the Sudanese uh, forces after the, uh, especially after the rise of uh, uh, Bashir uh, to power. But it wasn't just these historical opportunities, but also a changing understanding of what it means to be a liberation movement. And, the idea that actors embrace different roles and the practices associated with them can also help us to explain the transition that took place in the 1990s, which again, I do in the last chapter of the book, and in many ways is connected to my previous project, right? So, you know, so, so it's toward the end of this book that I go back to my first project about unrecognized statehood on the path to securing um, independence. So um, I think I, I think I'll finish I'll finish at uh, this point, and uh, I hope we can develop it in the Q and A session. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, thank you, Yuni, um, <clears throat> for that. Um, just I think I will ask a few questions, and then we will be tapping into the Q and A uh, section. Please do. Keep sending your question in um, while the discussion goes on. Um, reading through the book, in it, um, it, the book is actually quite interesting and it's coming at a very good time and helping some of us who are new into the field of research and um, trying to locate also the relevance of our thesis and our research and where they fit. Um, and I while reading through it, I found something very interesting and I, I wanted to know uh, where and what your thoughts were. Um, when you are presenting, for instance, uh, colonialism, anti-colonialism and decolonization, uh, and you employ it into this book to conceptualize uh, the conflict and you know, and belligrants and, and their action. And, and you use the idea, I mean, the, the notion of colonial, anti-colonial labels as a source of ideas, practice, and conduct of actors. Um, and so this book, which in the end tries to bring a tool for framing uh, conflict, especially the revolution and in that sense, there are already existing tools that are 
being employed and have been very influential in how policies, especially conflict intervention and post-conflict uh, reconstruction and world peace transition have happened in the last few years. And some of the most powerful of those include, includes the idea of civil wars and all the new wars and old war notions, which puts this idea that conflict at some point stopped, you know, that there was the interstate wars which ended and then it came the civil war. And the idea that civil wars, the interstate wars, it was driven by ideology. And that recent wars, even though they're seen as separatist wars or revolutionary wars, they lack ideas, the ideologies and so on. And it's driven by um, historical ethnic hatred rather than uh, what your, your book is, you know, is bringing uh, with very strong empirical analysis, which is so known. Now, my question is that with that kind of uh, notion that already there influence a lot of our approaches, which have also not produced anything that is satisfactory, what does your book and, and this new framing brings in terms of, of what, how does it impact on the existing and, you know, framework that or framing that is being applied to violence and conflict in this time, especially the, the ones that your book focuses on, the separatist uh, movement. Thank you so much, Posiano. Thank, thank you for the question. Um, I, I think the greatest contribution of the book, again, is, um, and I think you actually highlighted really nicely in your, in your comments on the book, is that it, it shows that conflicts never simply evaporate, right? Conflicts never simply end um, without leaving, you know, without we. Obviously, they leave legacies in terms of how, you know, in, in terms of um, the lives of people and, and the property that um, there is damaged and, and, you know, the, the, the in, you know, waves of refugees. But they also leave legacies in terms of how, um, of how conflicts should be, you know, in, in terms of how conflicts should take place, right? They create precedents. They create, they, they, they create tools, right? Practices that future movements can then and, and usually do end up embracing and learning and developing. Now, of course, there's always a process of evolution. So no, no, suppose you can call it no generation of liberation or separatist wars would be exactly the same as the previous one, but you could see the sediments, you could see, you could see the uh, the influences of these conflicts in future conflicts. So I haven't delved too much, for example, unfortunately, I haven't delved too much into the ongoing civil war in Sudan, right? Uh, which, which I think is one of the greatest tra tragedies that has not been covered at all, um, especially given the scale of the violence there. But if we go into this conflict, we might, we will see certain patterns that may have existed in previous conflicts now being reproduced perhaps being described differently, of course, being adjusted to new methods of fighting, new technologies perhaps, but still being reproduced in one way or another. And this is, I think this is the most important message of the book, right? Um, conflicts never disappear, but 
they, they evolve following previous patterns that were created in, in, you know, in, in, other, in previous conflicts. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, I, I can't hear you. So let me just tap back into the, the Q&A section. Um, that someone uh, wants to know that, did you come across ways that the, um, I could just read the whole uh, question, um, fascinating book. I see many parallels with certain elements of, of Berber's amazing activism. I'm very interested in the ways you describe liberation movement actors going abroad for education in various universities and their role playing in terms of international relations. So the question then is that, did you come across ways that this training fed into the role playing? It's got two parts. The second question was that, what diplomatic cadres of the liberation movement trained in any particular way. Thank you so much for the kind words. And, and it's an excellent question. And it's certainly something that the book uh, delves into because um, it is, you know, the, the interaction between the interaction between the leaders of the second generation post-colonial movement and the first generation was quite dense. Um, I'm not sure if if, if there was a certain in, you know, intentional pattern. But the thing is, if you, take, if you focus, for example, on the Southern Sudanese, uh, on the leaders of the Southern Sudanese movement, many of them ended up spending the, 19, the late 1950s, especially after the 1955, you know, uh, after the Torit incident in 1955, um, quite a few of these leaders moved to neighboring countries, right, to Uganda, to Kenya, to Ethiopia, uh, to um, Tanzania. And when there, they became, uh, they were very much immersed in this whole uh, sphere of liberation activism, right? It was very active. And I mentioned, I mentioned universities, and especially, uh, and, and um, higher high education institutions in Africa, for example, the Dar es Salaam University played an important part in how these leaders came to view themselves because they were constantly being, they, you know, the, the, the seminar rooms, the classrooms, the, these universities, they ended up as the place where these, indivi these individuals and leaders and groups, they, they actually absorbed their ideas, but they were actually exposed to how a liberation struggle should uh, should should um, uh, you know should should happen? Some of them, of course, also received some forms of um, um, training in guerrilla tactics, right? Both theoretical and practical in the places where they, uh, you know, in the places where they visited. Um, this is true, particularly to the. Um, I mean, uh, again, in the case of in the case of South Sudan, there was the case with the Anyanya rebels in the 1960s. There was even more so the case with the, um, with the SPLM, right, which, which emerged in the 1980s. And again, it's very much the same with um, Kurdish leaders. They, you know, Kurdish and Southern Sudanese leaders, they had to flee to wherever they could get refuge. But obviously, um, in, in this period of time, 
these places of refuge will, um, they were part of the post-colonial sphere. So there, it was inevitable that they will encounter and interact with other anti-colonial um, leaders and movements. And they also actively sought to do that, right? You actually, um, I mentioned uh, Nasser, right? Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt. He was actually frequently visited by both Kurdish and South Sudanese leaders. So it could, you know, Nasser probably didn't want to, he didn't, well, not probably, he didn't want to encourage separatist wars in the Arab world. But the fact that, you know, these, these leaders, um, the fact that these leaders went to meet with Nasser um, and talk to him and to his, you know, to his, to his circles meant that they were necessarily exposed to different tactics and strategies. And, and I think the comment also mentioned the, um, the uh, um, uh, Amazil activism. And it's fine. Um, the, the Amazil activism is really fascinating. And we can learn, I, th I think there are many parallels, um, you know, with, with the emergence of Amazil activism in, in, in Morocco and Algeria. It was, you know, it probably was also, it, it took some similar patterns. And by the way, when I started the research, I was also very much interested in the Sahrawi case, right, in Western Sahara. But because of time and space limitations, and because it was very difficult to actually carry out fieldwork in Tinduf and, and you know, the, the Sahrawi refugee camps, I had to give up on that. But, you know, the, the thing is that the, you know, the, 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 the tools that I provide in the book, they can be applied to other cases, definitely, and can help to better explain them. Okay, thank you. Um, so, just uh, building on that uh, a bit. So, when you were discussing in the book, and um, you were also very cautious uh, mentioning that you know, there is line, although it's very thin, in that between the revolution and uh, separatists and other forms of conflict and violence going on within uh, a state. Um, and so if you look at the, the SPLM, um, uh, you know, war in, in Southern Sudan and how you compare that with the Kurdish and looking at the leaders at the top, the leaders of the revolution, looking at uh, Garam, for instance, and the fact that you can access the very detailed uh, information in the archive, and we know that Garam in himself published several books and manuscripts, and and so could that also be used that to differentiate the the shape and the forms that conflicts in these countries, you know, take depending on. The, the level of not just the education, but also the engagement in terms of both domestic and international, you know, uh, or global politics in that sense. Could that then be part of the, what do you call it? Like the, the identifier of the proxy for differentiating because if the, all the types of conflicts you do mention that somehow borrow the tactics from the previous, um, generations of, of uh, fighters, could that fit within, within that framework as well? Or is that something that can be used to, to map out the difference between 
the separatist movement or the revolution and, and other forms of conflicts. Uh, th thank you so much, Ponciano, for the question. I think I think Zainab also would like to ask him a, a question as well. So can we take Zainab's question and then I'll try to answer both of the questions? Would that be okay, Ponciano? Of course. Yes. Thank you. Go ahead, My question is, um, I think it's a bit of a cheeky general question, which I was curious when you said um, how over time liberation movements have changed, like the way they understand what what it means to be a liberation movement has changed. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? I'm really curious to hear you know, how that has changed and you know, what, what, what it looked like compared to how they used to define themselves as a liberation movement after, for instance, you know, uh, the end of the Cold War. Thank you. Thanks very much. And so, so uh, 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 in terms of your question, I mean, of course, the thing is, you know, changes kept taking place um, throughout the liberation struggle, especially because the Kurdish and Southern Sudanese liberation struggles were so both of them were really prolonged, right? I mean, in the case of in the case of the Kurdish liberation struggle, it probably you, you can say that it ended in 1991, maybe only in 2003. So of course there were certain changes, and the SPLM, the SPLM under Grand was it was different to some extent from the Anyanya and the other and, and the liberation movement in the 1960s in that I mean Grand was much more cautious about independence for South Sudan at least in the 1980s 1990s but the so so the discourse may have changed slightly but certainly in the 1980s you still had the um, you know you, you still had the sense in spite of everything in spite of the fact that um, you know, in, in spite of the fact that the SPLM kind of diverged from the, the separatist, uh, you know, uh, discourse, um, it was very much inspired by, 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 by the same logic. And the thing is, we have to remember that the SPLM got a lot of training from Ethiopia in, in the 1980s, it was, it, it was in very close contact, for example, with the Ethiopian, with the Derg regime in Ethiopia. So um, it couldn't completely, it, didn't complete, it couldn't completely disengage from the past in the 1980s. It was only in the 1990s, again, with the change, with the changes. And I think Zeynep, this is also linked with your question. Right? The 1990s was indeed a very important um, the, the end of the Cold War was a very important um, uh, uh, point of transition in terms of liberation struggles. In that, it did force liberation movements in many parts in many parts of the world to rethink the um, in rethinking their strategies. Right. So suddenly, right. This process that started in the late 1980s, in which, in which decolonization itself started losing a bit of its weight in international politics, it forced movements to reconsider how they approached their own goals and their own liberation. By the way, I, I stressed, of course, I stressed the independence of the post-Soviet and post-Yugoslav states. But in this respect, um, Eritrea's independence was not less important especially in the case of South Sudan, because Eritrea's independence as well was based on the fact that the Eritreans, right, that the EPLF could 
can claim that they've established um, governance capacity. So yeah, so, so in the 1990s, these movements also came to describe themselves differently, and they, but they, did, you know, they didn't change their goals. Yeah, they came to frame their, uh, they, came, they, they came to frame their um, strategies, well, sorry, their, you know, their, yeah, their strategies their, or their practices differently. They definitely developed stronger um, bureaucratic institutions, they, you know, uh, so there was uh, some shift. There was some shift. It was that, that again, had a lot to do with changes in world conceptions and um, international practices. Um, but the call, the call remained the same. At the end of the day, it was still a separatist struggle that now relied not just on, um, not just on, and not just on moral arguments for liberation, but also on practical ones. Okay. Let me see if this, um, okay, so there's a question from the um, Q&A that, do you think that there are parallels with Palestinian struggles to become separate states and why those? Uh, I, I think it's one of the, uh, I think it's one of the more popular questions when I present my, when I present my research. Um, one of the things about the Palestinian struggle is that it's quite, it's quite different than the Kurdish and the Southern Sudanese one, in the sense that from the Palestinian perspective, um, certainly in many ways from, from you know, um, an international public opinion perspective, certainly from the perspective of the, uh, the first generation of anti-colonial liberation, the Palestinian struggle was part of this first generation uh, liberation struggle, right? As, as, as far as the discourse has been concerned, uh, the Palestinians were still fighting, the Palestinians were, you know, in many ways, they would, they would argue that they are still fighting uh, European colonialism and imperialism, right? So the Palestinians never faced the pressure that the South, that the South Sudanese and the Kurds have uh, faced because the South, the South Sudanese and, and the Kurds, they were seen by others again, especially in the Third World, which was which was you know which was an acceptable term at the time. Um, especially from that perspective, they um, they were seen, you know, in some ways they were seen as, as challenging the anti-colonial movement because you are trying to break post-colonial states from within. And this is one of the, uh, this, you know, this is one of the way that, the, one of the ways in which both the Sudanese and the Iraqi governments described these, um, these liberation movements as, as collaborators with imperialism, collaborators with European imperialism because they, they try to break everything we managed to achieve. So the Palestinians never, my point, you know, the point is that the Palestinians never faced these challenges. And they never really, um, to them from the start, they were in, um, they were an anti-colonial liberation movement. But they, their circumstances were also different because you know much of um, certainly up until the 1990s, much of the Palestinian struggle was being at least until the first Intifada. Much of the Palestinians struggle was being carried out from the outside. And then made, so this makes 
the comparison of the PLO to movements such as the South Sudanese and uh, Kurdish movement quite difficult, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't put this, I wouldn't put these movements in the same basket, even though, even though on both sides, they, you know, both, you know, the Kurds and, and the South Sudanese did also bring up the Palestinian case when they made, you know, and, and the, the great international support that the Palestinians were getting, and, you know, they, they, they were trying to compare themselves to the Palestinians. Um, it, didn't, it didn't really work out, right? And you, you can say that, I mean, and, and, and this is something that, you know, Kurdish nationalists and Southern Sudanese were saying before they got their independence. You know, we, we don't get the same attention and support that the Palestinians get. So, so there's, there's, there's a great difference between them, between these movements. We've nearly run out of time. Um, and um, just wondering if, uh, Zinat, would you like to say a few words before we give uh, two minutes for, for Yanif to, to conclude? Sure. Um, I'm just um, thank you for, for your talk, Yaniv, and thank you for sharing with us your um, insights from your research. It's such a rich research and so much to think about in terms of um, you know, how uh, the liberation movements and the strategies they use changes and transforms over time and in two different contexts, in two different political contexts. So it's not easy thing to compare, uh, compare the two. Um, so I think that was, this was really interesting to hear and that made me think about, um, again, you know, the importance of the international context and, and how much there are like wider international processes that are affecting these organizations, but in different ways. So, um, and I'm hoping that, you know, this kind of research grows more because we don't have much um, work comparing the Kurdish case with other cases. That kind of international comparison, I think, is really valuable for us to understand the Kurdish case uh, better as well. So thank you for that. That's, that's brilliant. My question is, what's next? What will you do next? Well, so thank you. First of all, again, thank you so much for the kind words. And again, thank you so much for including me in the Kurdish study series and allowing me to actually bring this. As you said, it's quite, it's never easy to decide where to put this research because it focuses on two different but, but the similarities are quite great. And this is, what, this is what's so fascinating, right? The similarities and the context is so similar. Um, what's next? So one of the things that I mentioned in the research, one of the things that really fascinated me was how the, the, the Iraqi and Sudanese governments used militias, right? They, uh, as, as a way, as a, not just as, as a way, as, as auxiliaries, but also as social political tools. And this is something that is now guiding my research. So I keep developing. So much of my research now is about, because militias are still an important element, an important part of international politics. So um, my research is very much dedicated to exploring militias, um, pro-government militias, right? And especially these defector militias, right? Militias of, of, of composed of defectors in civil wars. And uh, this is um, not in, in uh, I'm gonna stick with Iraq and Sudan because these are really fascinating cases, but hopefully trying to encompass many other cases such as Syria and Libya and uh, uh, perhaps Afghanistan. So yeah, this, this is where I'm heading now. 
Okay, um, thank you. That sounds great. I look forward to hearing more uh, on those. Hopefully, you know, with COVID ending, we'll get a chance to have a coffee or something and then we'll be able to talk about these in uh, person like we used to do. But thank you so much for, for Yanni for joining us today. Good to see you too. Yeah, thank you, Yanni. You too. Thank you so much. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> thank you. Um, so that was one thing that I've, I thought uh, should I liked before we, we finished. Um, that I think the biggest uh, contribution of this book um, is that it's, it's bringing a lot of question to what we already so used to. Uh, I think the biggest, especially on, on, in response to conflict and also dealing with the transition from, you know, between fighting for separatism to actually, when you are given like South Sudan got, <clears throat> that the international community completely ignored what this book you know, discusses and brings into very great detail, that there was either a thought of or fully conceptualized institution that perhaps even SPLM had gone to an extent to try to produce this institution, that the World Banks and the big institutions came and started making a very big claim that South Sudan was starting from scratch. So that means they, they ignored completely, will underlook the institutions that were created by SPLM and run through the 90s into you know, the, the post-liberation. Um, so that in itself, this book is trying to take us back into to question whether these were missed opportunities and if let's say Cadiz some region is to get their you know their, their independent, where would they start? Would they still make the same mistake and put aside all these institutions that have been running for the last you know several decades and start to build the liberal state from scratch? I think that is one of the greatest uh, you know contribution. And that I can pick from this book myself, and it brings a lot of these kind of questions, which in itself is another area for for research. And with those few words, I would like to say thank you once again to those who managed to find time to to attend. We thank you, and also you know behind every successful event, there are unsung heroes who are behind the system, like Nadine. Um, thank you so much for running the whole thing and, and that there's no system breakage, there's no network and so on. So thank you for that. And thank you to the Middle East Center and the Federal uh, <coughs> Youth Center and Institute for Africa. And I think, uh, thank you all for coming and for the great event. And thank once again, congratulations, Denise. Thank you so much, Ponciano, for everything, for, yeah. for the event and for your, for your comments. It was lovely. And thanks again, Zaina. And then yeah. everyone the Okay. Everyone thanks from all of us. Have yeah. a lovely day. Thank you.